Well, if I have not met you yet, my name is Caleb. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Life. Um, Bear with me. I just got back from like a bachelor party, and for some reason, we just scream the entire weekend out of pure just joy. I don't know. So my voice is like a lower octave (laughs) than it normally is. Um, So pray for me as I have the just tenacity to carry this through. I'm going to read for us. Uh, I'm in Colossians 1. Uh, We're in verses 10 through 14. Uh, We're continuing through the book. We just started uh, this great, great book of Colossians. So I'm going to read this for us. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, Father, I pray just uh, your word uh, is clear that it does not fall uh, on deaf ears, that all of us will respond to it with faith and obedience. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, a, this is kind of a tricky, tricky passage because there's this phrase here, walking worthy of God. And I think a lot of us, when we think of that, we're like, wait a minute, that sounds kind of contradictory to the gospel, right? I thought that I didn't really have to do anything to earn the favor of God. But that's not necessarily what Paul is talking about here. I think an illustration that I thought of um, that, was, that might be helpful. Uh, has anybody seen Remember the Titans? Okay, you've got to. <laughs> like, iconic. I'm not just saying this. I believe it, but I'm not just saying this. It's top five football movies, like, ever. And there's a coach. And so, so the backstory of it, if you haven't seen it, Spoiler alerts. Um, in Virginia, they had not integrated uh, schools yet. And so this was the first kind of year that they had done that. It was 1971. And what happened then is Coach Boone, he's a black man, he was asked to be the head coach of this newly integrated team. And so Coach Boone and all of the the, just the, the toughness that, that that was, that that happened, he is huge on identity, uniform. He talks a lot about, like, when you put on this Titan uniform, you will be perfect. He talks a lot about how, like, wearing this uniform means something. It's, it's beyond just football, because for him it was. It was beyond just winning games. There was something that he was wanting to accomplish in the community that had not been done before. Two completely opposing sides being reconciled together. And this team that he was developing, that he was coaching, they would show what it means to live in friendship with one another, to live reconciled together. He says, no, when you wear this uniform, that is what you are showing this community. It's so much bigger than in football. And so Paul is saying a similar thing here that when we are living lives worthy of the king, 
there is something that we have to do. There is something that the way that we walk and demonstrate to the world, it, it demonstrates that we are bought by the king. And so this word, worthy, so I, I want to, let me back up. I'm going to break this into, into three kind of categories. So if you are a note taker, then this is the day for you because I have got a lot of stuff for you. Um, so three kind of topics or, or headings or questions that I want to work through. First of all, what, what does this even mean? What does it mean to live a life worthy of God? Second question is how could we possibly even do this? This seems impossible. When we flesh that out, it, it will look impossible. And then the last question is then how should we live? So each question is going to kind of build on one another. It will make sense as, as we go on. So the first one, what, what does this mean? I want to kind of break down this, this phrase worthy of, of God. So this word worthy, axios, it's in Greek. So essentially what it means is suitably, worthily, in a manner worthy of. Uh, so for Paul, this word meant it, it's ascribing worth to something. So essentially what he's saying when he's commanding others to live a life worthy of God, then everything that we hold is lesser than the gospel. We hold the gospel in supreme value over everything in our lives. Functionally, that's what he means, is that when we live lives worthy of the gospel, then we're demonstrating to others the supreme worth of Jesus. There's five other times that this phrase is actually used. So uh, 3 John 1.6, I'm not going to read all these, but just if you want to write those down, it's almost identical what he says. But what's really interesting is, so Paul, the writer in, in Colossians, and Philippians, and Ephesians, and Thessalonians, not the first one, um, he writes this phrase, from prison. So three of four of those times, he is in prison telling the churches, hey, live a life that is declaring the worth of God while in prison. I found that really fascinating because as we dig into that a little bit more, that's going to mean a lot. Coming from a man that had given his entire life to the gospel, it actually put him in Prison. So Tony Ranke, he gives four tests, I think, that for us, they're kind of barometric um, or pressure, like, a, like a, a way for us to see, are we actually living lives that are worthy of the gospel? So are my hands, so this is all under the first point, just for you to know, are my hands bearing godly fruit? Is my mind growing in the knowledge of God? Is my life resilient and patient is my heart full of, of joyful gratitude. So those are four tests that will kind of help us see, are, are we actually doing this? Are we living lives that are, that are worthy of the gospel? So this first one, are my hands bearing godly fruit? Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. I'm just going to, full disclaimer, this is going to be like my longest point. <laughs> um, because the Bible says a lot about this, a lot about what it means to, to bear fruit. And I, I think if you grew up in church or maybe you've been around Christianity for, for a while or maybe not, I don't know, like you've maybe heard this phrase, but like it's kind of this lullaby effect when you hear something over and over, you just kind of forget that like this is a weird phrase. 
bearing fruit. I thought trees did that. What does it mean for me to, to bear fruit? And scripture is all over this. And so I think I, I want to paint for you really kind of a, a biblical theology of, of this from, from beginning to end because this is crucial for us to get. And what I would argue is what it means to actually be human is bearing fruit. And it's because we are likened, what the psalmist in Psalm 1, he paints us actually as trees, humans as trees. Let me read that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Genesis 1, there is this, um, it's this really fascinating structure of Genesis 1. If you haven't seen this before, the days kind of match up with, with other days. So it's not a science book. <laughs> it doesn't give kind of the, the full, like, how old the world is. Please don't be mad at me for saying that, just FYI. It, really what Genesis 1 is painting is for a people that have been enslaved to an oppressive nation, and then they are being told, hey, you are not a slave anymore. You, in fact, are mine. And let me show you our relationship. So God is painting for these people who they are in him. And day six is this like culmination of, of humanity. It's this beautiful explanation of God and his desire and his relationship with humanity. But what's interesting, so if you can see this, day one and day four, they match up. So God creates light. Day four, he, skill, or, or he fills the skies with the sun, light, moon, and stars. Day two, he separates the waters. Day five, and he fills the waters and skies with fish and birds. Day three, there's two acts. He causes land to emerge, and then he causes these fruit trees to emerge. In day six, he creates animals to fill the land, first act with day three, and then the second act, he creates humans. They emerge from the ground, and they are fruitful, and the words there are so similar. Humans are like trees. He even tells us to be fruitful. In Genesis 2, the word for humanity is Adam, and then the word for earth is so similar, Adamah. In Psalm 92, 12 through 15, it says, The righteous, they flourish like a palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They, they flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in an old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. So, so bearing fruit in this case is more than just having kids. It's, it's, it's these works that we do, even to the end. That bearing fruit, it, 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 it appears that like, man, these are the works that God wants me to do for the world. Proverbs 11.30 the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. That's interesting because the very beginning it talks about how there was this tree of life and now we are supposed to be like a tree of life. And the one who is wise saves lives. 
another reference, Isaiah 44, 3 through 4, it talks about how God's spirit is like water. So I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. They'll spring up from among grass like willows by flowing trees. So like, I, I'm wanting to paint something here. This is not just giving you a bunch of references to show us that, oh, we're like trees. But this is like a very, a very big thread that's painted all throughout the Bible. In fact, Isaiah spent, so one of the prophets spends a ton of his book talking about how we were supposed to be like these trees that were to bless the world. So if you think about it, in the very beginning, God gave this command for humanity to be fruitful and fill the earth with his goodness. And we failed at that. And then he takes this nation, Israel, and says, I'm going to make you a nation that is going to fill the earth and bless the nations with the glory of who I am. That is, that's your role. That's how we're going to put this world back together. And what happens is it, Isaiah is painting this, this tragedy of how that didn't work. He, said, he likens their fruit to like death. Isaiah 1, Zion, or 27 through 30, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that they desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. So there was such promise for Israel to be like this, this nation who would bear fruit, who would give the nations, who would show and extend the glory of God. And he says, you had so much promise and you blew it. In fact, I looked all around, I saw only wickedness and injustice. Isaiah 5-7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in, and he looked for justice, but all he saw was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but all he heard were the cries of the distress. You were supposed to be these extravagant trees, and now you're just dead trees. You were supposed to be fruitful, and now you have fake fruit. You're supposed to be a nation of justice, but you are the ones that are creating injustice. And so God has a plan then in Isaiah 10. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over. The Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bows with terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down. Those who are lofty will be abased. Abased, I don't know what that is. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And Isaiah is, is giving us this forecast, this foreknowledge of this shoot was supposed to be Israel, but it's going to be someone else. It's going to be a rescuer who could actually be the one who bears fruit. Be the one that lives the design of God. Be the one that extends justice and mercy to people. 
Isaiah 53, 1 through 2, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. Guys, this is a fulfillment of the very beginning when God said after humanity had fallen apart and they ran from God, he said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to send a seed. I'm going to send a seed that is going to save humanity. That seed is Christ. John 15, Jesus actually, he he talks about now how he is this tree. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Christ has given this glorious picture of how now he is this seed. He is this tree of life that has come to give blessing to the nations. And he says, if you remain in me, you will bear fruit. You will bear the fruit that I have, that I want to use and channel through you. Isaiah 27, 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. That's Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives these parables of how the seed is the gospel, that it's fallen on good soil, and it refers to someone who who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 100, 60, 30 times. And he said another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of seeds, when it grows the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree, and so the birds, and it's talking about the birds are, are, are images of the nations. The nations will come and perch on its branches. It's this glorious image of how we will finally, in Christ, do what we were supposed to do in the very beginning. Do you see that? When we bear fruit, we are actually channeling Christ. And so when Paul is saying, bear fruit in every good work, are you attached to the true tree of life? Are you attached to the vine? Are you attached to the one who actually wants to bring wholeness and peace to the world because he wants to use you to do that? That's his goal from the beginning. He's saying, I want to channel my life and power through you. It's an incredible thing. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, are we trees of life for people or are we trees of death? In the things that we say, in the things that we do, are we bringing the life of Jesus to people? Or do they actually not want to be around us? Are we reproducing I'm not talking about making babies and and being fruitful in that way. I'm talking about, are we taking the mission of sharing the gospel to people, the seed of the gospel, and then are we responsible for people 
to walk them through what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's, that's what it means to bear fruit. And if our hands are not bearing any kingdom fruit for the king, man, that's an indicator. Are we attached to the vine? So test number two is my mind growing in the knowledge of God. So this is similar to the first point. So I won't spend as long on this one. But he says increasing in the knowledge of God. He's using that language growth again. What are you filling your minds with? How are you obeying Jesus with, with all of your mind? What, what thoughts keep you up at night? What are those thoughts that, that, that are dominating you? Are they dominated by the things that Jesus loves? Or are they dominated by lesser things? I, I, this hit me pretty hard this week. What we think about all the time, what we spend our entire weeks just thinking about, that has our heart. That has our affections. These are not separated. In fact, the Jews thought this was one thing. <laughs> The heart and the mind, they, they went together. The, the, the way that what I thought about it drove my desires and my affections. So obeying Jesus with, with our mind, I, I love what Ben said. So he, he went last week, he went to Romans 12, 1 through 2. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. So when you, I'm going to steal this from him, when you sit in front of the TV, are you asking Jesus, am I going to obey you with my mind? <laughs> am I going to obey you with, with my thoughts? Man, it's so easy for us just to, to flirt with sin, to, to consume sin. With these walking contradictions. And Paul is saying, no, when you give Jesus your mind, when you're obeying him with your mind, that means living a life worthy of God. That means that in all things, the gospel and the kingdom and Christ is supreme in all of those things. That's what it means to obey him with our mind. His thoughts become our heart, or our thoughts, his heart becomes our heart. His dreams are dreams. Tony Ranke says this, nothing runs more contrary to the will of the king than for his majesty to be ignored because our minds have grown lazy. And our hearts have settled for this phantom of a king made in our own imagination. It's really interesting that Paul he actually connects verse 6 in Colossians with verse 10. So in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And then he says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, please Him in every way, bearing fruit. It's like the same exact thing. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. So just as the gospel is bearing fruit in the world, God's people themselves must be bearing fruit. As the knowledge of God is filling the earth, so must his people be filled with the knowledge of who he is. Do you see that? 
as the gospel move forth, moves forth, so must us. It happens together. It's this paradox of grace. As God is at work, so are his people. Are you growing in love for God through his word? Knowledge should always, it should always lead to obedience. It should always lead to this fruit. I think it's really crucial that he puts those together. N.T. Wright says this, knowing God itself is itself an activity, but obeying him is a form of devotion. Knowledge of God should always lead to obedience for God. If obedience for Jesus is not flowing out of the knowledge of Jesus, then these are not connected. There is something seriously wrong. If the things that we are learning and being filled with the knowledge of God is not producing in us fruit, Christ would liken us to this dead tree in Isaiah. Even more so, he would, there's this weird story in scripture where he like has it out with this fig tree. <laughs> Just absolutely blasts this fig tree. But the point there is that Israel is actually likened to this fig tree and he's saying, you, you look fruitful, but you're dead on the inside. Are we connected to the vine? Is the knowledge of God producing in us love for God and obedience for God? So test number three, is my life resilient and patient? So may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So there's really two things there, the, the endurance and patience. It's, one of it is enduring in, in life's just general struggles and pains. And those are real. I know you have them. I have them. The second one is an endurance for mission, too. And I'll get that in a second. But the first one, this idea of, of patience, enduring and struggles and pain, it's, it's really interesting that, that Paul uses the word strengthened and power for that. So what he's drawing upon is how God is this great power all throughout Scripture. He is seen as this, this rescuer. He is seen as one who is full of power. And he rescues his people from the domain of darkness. He rescued his people from the clutches of this oppressive nation. He delivers his people. And ultimately, he is one who delivers us from the evil within us. And then Romans 8 says that same power, that same spirit of God who overcame the grave now lives in you. It dwells within you. It is, he has made he is tabernacled. He is dwelling now within you. And Paul is saying we can endure with patience because that same power actually dwells within you. John Piper says this patience is the evidence of, of an inner strength. And this painful connection that's drawn from this text, it's that inner strength, it must Manifest in outward patience. I'm looking at you guys at the post online. <laughs> Man, are we are we filled with the love of God that is actually producing in us patience for other people that don't think like us? 
Are we filled so much with the love of God that when life comes at us, when suffering happens, that we're not actually surprised by it because we believe that Christ is sovereign and he's sovereign over us and and his plan is good. And I'm not saying that exempts us from pain. Pain is real, but a trust, a trust that he is good and he will carry us through. We just sang about this. He will hold us fast. N.T. Wright, again, he's helpful here, a patient and long-suffering spirit. The quiet corollary of our faith, hope, and love is the product of a settled conviction that the Father of Christ is sovereign Lord of the world and that he is able to bring about his purposes in his own time and his own manner. So ultimately a patience at the heart of it is a trust in God and a belief that he is good and that he will carry us through all pain and suffering. So I think that's the first part of that. But the second part Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, but he does in a similar passage in Philippians. It's an endurance for mission. It's Philippians 1, 27 through 28. Where is that? There we go. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by anything by your opponents, because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. So Paul's saying this from prison. He's saying, I have been chained up and bound up because of the gospel, but I'm not upset about that. Why? Because I can share the gospel with the entire imperial guard of, of Caesar. I now have this opportunity that through suffering, I would not have had. And so I'm going to be steadfast, and I'm going to rejoice in that, and I'm begging you, hold fast, because enemies are coming at you. When the gospel really goes forth, it doesn't go without enemies coming after us. So he's saying endure in suffering because actually what happens is when they are coming at you, like Stephen and Acts, when they're throwing stones at you, that is actually a sign of the wrath of God towards them later. (laughs) Hold fast. Don't give up. Endure. Be resilient. Press on. Press on. Is our life resilient and, and patient? And the last test is, is my heart full of joyful gratitude, with joy giving thanks to the Father? So like all of that was already impossible enough. Now we have to do it with joy. <laughs> now we have to do it with, with some sort of rejoicing. But I think our culture, it it doesn't do a great job at really explaining what joy is. Because in Scripture, this this word for joy, kara, it's it's this idea that it's not not just like a happiness. I think the way we think of joy, it's like happy when life is good. For a lot of people, joy can be something really insincere when you've gone through a lot of pain. You're just told to cheer up and and get over it, turn that frown upside down. I mean, that's not, 
It's not joy. For thousands of years, the Jews would celebrate Passover to demonstrate their deliverance from Egypt, that God had had rescued them, as we're going to see a little bit later, that God had rescued them from the domain of darkness. And this was to stir up in them joy. So it's not about this present. Like, they could actually be suffering in the present, but joy for them was looking backwards and seeing the faithfulness of God. So they could endure through suffering knowing that God was a rescuer. But it also is this anticipation of looking forward that God was going to deliver them from something much greater, the evil within. It's this back and this this forth, this, this remembering of who God is and the faithfulness of who God is, but also looking forward knowing that he will deliver us. That's a much more hopeful understanding of joy because the world is marked by death and loss but where scripture is unique is that God's people can adopt joy not because of happy circumstances but because of their hope and God's love and his promise Isaiah 51.11, those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy, crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. Luke 2, when Jesus was born, right? I bring you great news, (laughs) good tidings. Good news that brings great joy. The future anticipation of rescue had come in their midst. Matthew 5, 12, when people reject and persecute you for following me, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Acts 13, 52 and 5, 41 talks about how the early churches were marked. It says they were marked by this joy. And I just said this, but Philippians 3.1, Paul could say in prison that he's choosing joy even if he gets killed. And finally, Hebrews 12.2, the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How could Christ on the cross have joy? Because of the promise of his sacrifice, what that would mean for you and me. So he went through the most egregious atrocity done to anybody. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross so that you and I could be in right relationship with him. It's this, it's this joy brought about through suffering. When I, was, when I was in college, I had the great idea for some reason, to run up a mountain. Um, There's this place called Howard's Knob, and I've, I've driven up this thing a lot. Um, and it's a, be- I mean, it's a beautiful sight. But there was something about actually running up this thing that I'll never be able to do again. <laughs> but this, like, long suffering, and there was even a moment where I'm like, there's no way, I can't get up this thing. Like, I was crawling at one point. It's like, I guess I can't try out for the wrestling teams. They had to do this every single year. <laughs> but when I got to the top, there was a, like, it was the same view, but I looked at it differently. 
I saw in this process of like, man, what, literally looking down at the road that I had just run up, it took this long, painful process to actually experience something brand new that I had never seen before, just the beauty. But it went, it, it happened through suffering, and Christ is saying, I want to bring you into greater joy of me, but it's not going to be without suffering. So endure with patience, giving thanks to the Father with great joy. So I'm going to go a little bit quicker here. Second point, how could we ever do this? So if you're like me, then you failed at one or all of these. (laughs) You're not looking too hot. But having laid out these four tests, then Paul breaks into how and why we are to live lives worthy of the king. He says, Christ, who would give thanks and whom we find our joy, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. If there was any doubt that the tests that Paul gives about living a worthy life were in order to, for us to qualify for the kingdom, he says, no, Christ has qualified you for the kingdom. All of this stuff that I just said to you, I know you can't do that. You can't do it perfectly. But Christ has qualified you to bear fruit. He has qualified you to endure with patience. He has qualified you to even have joy. And even greater is he's qualified you to share in this inheritance. He's looking backwards to the Exodus again. The idea that like the Jews, when they were rescued from Egypt, then they were to share in this inheritance of this land that God was giving them. But back then in the ancient Near East, land always meant where God was. There was a God, every, every land, every people had their own land and their own God. And God was saying, no, I came down to a land that you did not belong to. And then I brought you out of that, out of this domain of darkness, to share now in this inheritance of the saints and light. But it's more about stuff. It's more about just getting things. And I think, man, we just do a so, such a bad job at this. When Paul is saying to share in the inheritance of light, it says that you're getting God. God is light, 1 John 1.5. He is the father of lights, James 1.17. The son is the light of God's glory, Matthew 4.16, Luke 2.32, so on and so on. To live in the presence of the king, to dwell in the presence of Christ, means that night will be no more, the sun will be no more, because we will need no light of lamp or sun, because the Lord God will be their light when we, we were not saved just for the sake of going to heaven, we were saved and bought and delivered into this inheritance to get God. If you went to heaven and you had all the things that you wanted but God wasn't there, do you still want to be there? I think maybe we would say no, but in our hearts we'd say Yes. Christ did not save us for the sake of just going to be 
in this place with, with mansions and, and pearly gates and all these things. No, he saved us that we could have the very thing that will satisfy our hearts. And he says, you can share now in this inheritance because what I did for you. And then Paul, he points us back to this. He's delivered us from this domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Delivered, redeemed, transferred. Redeemed is this, it's this old term. It talks about being bought back from a slave market. And it says that we were actually purchased from slavery of sin, the bondage of sin, and we have been delivered and now transferred into the kingdom of light where God is. The one in whom we forever are searching. That thing that we think will satisfy our hearts, and at the end of it, we're like, no, that's not it. It's because you were made for him. And he says, now you can share in that inheritance because of Christ. With his sacrifice, Christ purchased us from the bondage of sin. We were slaves to it. Romans 1 talks about how we weren't even choosing, we weren't even looking for him. And he gave his life for us. Being our own gods rather than submitting to God But Christ said, no, I will come do the thing that they can't do. And I will give my life for them. And for Paul, this inheritance extends to all people. We can share now in the inheritance of God. So the last question really is in how how should we live? We can do verses 10, 12 through A because of verses 12B through 14. We can live lives worthy of the gospel, bearing fruit, enduring with patience, and having joy because we have been bought with a price. We were qualified by Christ. When God delivered his people from Egypt, they became his possession. And then he delivered them through the waters. And on the other side, they became his people, and man, that's the exact same thing when we have been delivered and then we go through the waters of baptism showing that we have been purchased and on the other side, then, we are the church. We are his people. We are his possession. Themes of, of holy people and, and kingdom and children of light, they flow all throughout these verses. Because right when God saved Israel, he says, and now you shall be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And then Peter, looking back to that in 1 Peter 2.9, he would say the same thing, but you now, child of God, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness, the domain of darkness, into his marvelous light, the inheritance of light. It's the same story. We are now this kingdom of of royal priests. What does that mean? 
Romans 15, 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Revelation 1, 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This sounds exactly like Genesis 1.28, when God made humanity, and then he said, and he blessed them, he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule, rule over the earth over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. So living a life worthy of the gospel is it's capturing all of these themes of, of bearing fruit, of, of, of being mediators now between God and a world that is completely broken. And he's saying, you are Royalty. Because you've been purchased by Christ. And to live as these royal priests in a world is to partner with God to bring the kingdom here. This is why Jesus asked to pray for it. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Great Commission is the same thing. He says, now go, be fruitful, multiply, make disciples, and fill the earth So by worthiness, John Flavel says this, the apostle does not mean meritoriousness, but the decorum which befits a Christian. So to live a life worthy of the king is to live in the dignity of that royalty, to make much of Jesus, to show his supreme worth in the world, to partner with him, to bear fruit, to grow in the knowledge of God, to persevere through suffering and in mission and doing it all with joy and expectancy of our future hope that Ephesians 2.6, we, as we have been raised with Christ, we will be seated with him in the heavenly places. And then Revelation 22.4, they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They won't need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Living a life worthy of God means what it means to be human. What God designed for us. That we would simply partner with him to spread throughout the whole earth that God is glorious. He is supreme. And we'll do that with him forever and ever because we've been delivered and transferred, redeemed. So we can take those first, now in light of that, we can take those first two verses and what we do every week is, is in response to the sermon, if God has been like, toying, like just working in you, working in your heart, maybe there's something that's like, yeah, I just, I need to, I need to respond in some way. 
I would use verses 10 through 12a as, as, a, as a starting place. Am I not bearing fruit? Are the things that I say to people evil? Or am I channeling the love of Christ to them? Am I a very impatient person? <laughs> Resting in the power of Christ, knowing that it's from within that he delivers this outward patience? Am I enduring through suffering? Am I, do I feel empowered for mission? Do I have this expectancy and this joy in my heart for Christ? So I'm going to give you just a minute or two just, just to pray. Um, all of us in some way, we need to respond to, to the word. But as you do that, just pray that God will, will illuminate in you what we need to do in response to his text. And then I'll close this and, and transition us to a, a time of communion. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord together.